Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favourite writers such as J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu. The list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started. How many times have you been laying in bed thinking to yourself, you know what, what I really should have told that person is such and such, or why did I agree to do that? We are always plagued by the roads taken or not taken. And Back to the Future taps right into that. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. Great Scott, it's somehow the end of season two, and we're going out with an 88 mile per hour, 1.21 gigawatt bang. Yes, joining us before we make like a tree and get out of here, as Biff Tannen might say, is none other than Bob Gale, writer of the iconic Back to the Future. In this special season finale, Bob delves into a radically different first draft of the film, one that includes a time-travelling fridge, that's right, no DeLorean, and Marty McFly and Doc Brown running a VHS film piracy operation out of the back of a rundown cinema. In this draft, they have a pet chimp, I promise I'm not making this up, and there's even a shootout with the US military. The script climaxes with our heroes driving into the mushroom cloud of an atom bomb explosion, rather than using a lightning storm to get back home, as they do in the finished film. You'll also hear about the elements of Bob's original screenplay that Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg borrowed for Forrest Gump and Indiana Jones 4, respectively. Bob also shares what it's been like working on the musical retelling of the film that recently hit London's West End, and exactly how a film this outlandish, in which a teenager goes back in time and almost gets together with his own mother, took over the world. As for us, well, we'll be taking a short break after this episode to work on some of our own filmmaking projects that we're excited about and generally try to catch a breather. Don't worry though, we'll be back very soon with season three, so don't go anywhere. We are your density, to quote George McFly. Before we dive into the episode, a quick reminder that if you like what we do, you can support us on Patreon. Yes, for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can help the show continue to grow and look forward to a ton of fun bonus content when season three drops. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. We've also recently started a community on the podcast app Repod. If you haven't come across it before, it's essentially a social media platform for podcast fans where you can connect with other listeners as well as the creators of your favourite shows. Download the app by searching for Repod, that's R-E-P-O-D, and help yourself to a free one-month membership by entering the code FRIENDS at checkout. 
Okay, that's the promotional stuff all out of the way. Let's get into it with the incredible Bob Gale, writer of one of my all-time favourite movies. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, that includes Dave H and Jeff McDonald, and a huge thanks as well to everyone who's tuned in this season. It's been a blast making it, I really hope you've enjoyed listening. See you guys soon for season three. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Bob Gale, so great to have you with us on Script Apart. How are you doing today? I'm doing just fine, Al. It's uh, 9.30 in the morning over here in uh, sunny California, and uh, I'm still having my morning coffee, and uh, I'm doing just fine. Thanks. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. So, um, Bob, I was going to begin by asking if it's been fun over these last few years being back in the headspace of this story, Back to the Future, just through working on the musical. But then it occurred to me that when you write something with the kind of immense cultural footprint that Back to the Future has, well, there probably haven't been many days over the last 35 years or so where you haven't thought about it or where you haven't been asked about it or where you haven't encountered it in just the pop cultural ether the way that I do all the time, whether that's turning on my TV and seeing something like Rick and Morty or, you know, hearing hearing Back to the Future discussed in the latest Avengers movie. So, yeah, what do you put it down to, the, the staying power, the extraordinary staying power of this film? What did Back to the Future tap into? There are a couple of things. Uh, primarily, I would say Back to the Future taps into something that crosses all cultures, all generations, in that who hasn't ever wondered what my parents did on their first date, right? I mean, it's just everybody is going to ask that question at some point in their life. And as children, we all have a revelation when we're seven, eight, nine years old, where we truly understand, good God, my parents actually were once children. They were once awkward, fumbling little kids like me, um, and their clothes didn't fit and stuttered and, you know, fell down and Maybe they got picked last on the sports team. Uh, Whatever you're going through, they went through. And Back to the Future captures both of those things. You know, it's kind of like of of all of Shakespeare's plays, does Romeo and Juliet have such staying power? Because if you look at the core of what Romeo and Juliet is about, it's simply summed up in the phrase, my parents don't want me to see that guy. Right. <laughs> and everybody said, oh, yeah, OK. My parents don't want me to be with that person. Oh, OK. Yeah. I, yeah. 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 So uh, and that's what Back to the Future taps into. It also says that we have a certain amount of control over our own destiny, which is a good thing to be reminded of that. Gee, should I go out with that person or not? Should I take that job or not? Should I go with those guys and do something questionable uh, in the middle of the night? or not. Uh, all those kind of little things that the little decisions that we make throughout our lives, uh, some of them can have major repercussions. And Back to the Future deals with that. We get to see the life of the McFly family when George did not stand up to Biff. And then we see the life of the McFly family when he did. And how many times have you been laying in bed thinking to yourself, you know what? What I really should have told that person is such and such, or why did I agree to do that? Or why didn't I agree to do that? 
So we are always plagued by the roads taken or not taken. And again, back to the future taps right into that. Usually with movies, I can see the storytelling lineage. So you look at Star Wars and you can see how George Lucas was loosely following the narrative path of the Hidden Fortress and Joseph Campbell's right. The Hero's Journey. Right. But Back to the Future, well, I don't know if I can name many other movies that uh, existed before it that you know would have set a template for you to kind of follow. So did you go into writing Back to the Future wanting to tell a story that hadn't been told before with a really singular tone and this kind of crisscrossing structure that was quite new? Like, where did the originality of Back to the Future emerge from? It all came from the core idea, which is a kid ends up going to high school with his parents as contemporaries. So once you say, okay, that is the premise, you have to start asking questions. And as I lay this out, your listeners will say, oh, that's easy. That's easy. That's easy. It's not easy. But <laughs> sum it up, it'll sound real easy. So you say, okay, if a kid ends up in high school with his parents, how does he go back in time? How, do, how does that happen? There, there's lots of ways. He can make a wish. He can get hit on the head like Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. He can make a deal with the devil. But Bob and I being technological kids growing up in the 50s and the 60s, we said it's got to be a time machine. So, OK, so we make the first decision. How does he get back to 1955? There's got to be a time machine. Then the next question you have to ask is, where does the time machine come from? Who invented it? And that requires a lot of thought because you say, OK, well, what if uh, what if the government invented it? Well, if the government invented it, it wouldn't work. What if the Department of Defense or the military industrial complex did? Well, that opens up a whole can of worms where you just say, gee, I don't want to live in a world where, you know, North American Rockwell is, is building a time machine to mess up things and, and do whatever it is they want to do. So we decided to turn to a page of, of American mythology, which says that somewhere uh, there is an inventor who in his basement or in his garage, he created the reusable match that the match companies would not let us have. Or he created the internal combustion engine that gets 250 miles to the gallon. And the oil companies wouldn't want us to have that. Or, you know, like Alec Guinness in The Man in the White Suit, he invented the indestructible fabric and the clothing uh, manufacturers don't want that out there. So we said, that's the guy who would invent time travel. Uh, and who is that guy? Well, it's Doc Brown, of course. And when you see Doc Brown, you're going to believe that, yeah, he would be the guy that invented the time machine. Again, by asking and answering these simple questions about how do you make the story work? How do you make the plot work? You, you make certain decisions that inform how the story is going to unfold. Now, the, the human story is to say, OK, Marty interacts with his parents as adolescents, where is the issue there? And we decided that it would be far more interesting for Marty to straighten out his dad, for his dad to have problems. Really, Marty's focus is, how am I going to get my parents back together? If I don't get, get this done in a certain amount of time, I'm going to be erased from existence. So his focus is purely one of survival. He is not thinking of of any collateral issues 
they need to kiss on that dance floor. And that's going to ensure that my siblings and I are born and I can return to a 1985 where things are as I left them. So that was a far more interesting dynamic, father-son dynamic than to say, okay, Marty's messed up and his young father straightens him out. That wasn't, that, that just didn't, that just didn't work. So again, then we said, okay, so what is the problem? Well, the problem is that um, Marty's mom falls in love with him instead of his dad. And that's the real human issue. How do I get these two people uh, to fall in love? As you start to answer these questions of your own and lay out the building blocks for the story, were you kind of aware of like how on paper outlandish it was sounding? Like my relationship with Back to the Future, I wasn't born when the film came out, but I was surrounded by it throughout my childhood. I watched it again and again and again, and it's so ingrained in me, so normalized that it wasn't until pretty recently, really, that I realized just how outlandish it is. You've got a kid whose best friend is a disgraced nuclear physicist. They go back in time in a beat-up car. One small action, pushing George out of the way of an oncoming car, leads to his own mother getting the hots for him, threatening to alter the course of history and wipe Marty and his siblings out of existence. And it's a family film. There's a lot going on there. <laughs> As you were kind of um, laying all those things out, were you realizing we're in some new territory here? This is quite a unique story we're telling. We really weren't thinking of it in those terms. The basic thing that when, then when Bob and I would get together and, and come up with ideas uh, for movies, we would, the number one thing was, is this a movie that I want to see? And the answer to that has to be yes, because you know, we didn't want to do a movie. Oh, well, there's these two cops that don't get along. And no, no, no. We're not doing that. You know, we're not doing your standard rom-com thing because it's been done too many times and it doesn't doesn't get our juices going. So this was something. Yeah, it was new. We hadn't seen it before. Uh, and actually, we were kind of surprised that nobody really hit on this idea. There was an episode of The Twilight Zone called Walking Distance. Uh, where Gig Young walks around the corner and finds himself back. His dad was his age and encounters um, himself at, at age nine or 10. There were a couple of things like that that we were aware of. You know, Superman comics, uh, he goes back to Krypton and uh, meets his father on the wedding day of something I read when I was a kid. Um, so yeah, there's there, there were things like that. And of course, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, which uh, had a huge impact on Back to the Future Part Two. We were kind of amazed that, that this story in, it, in its purest form really hadn't been told. And of course, that was something that got us even more excited to say, hey, this would be a lot of fun. And, and then the, the cultural aspects to say, yeah, what if he invents rock and roll? What if he invents the skateboard? This was just all stuff that we wanted to see this. So we're going to put that in the script and we're going to try to get that movie made. And in terms of the, the science behind the screenplay, the butterfly effect theory of time travel that's kind of at the heart of this movie, where did that stem from? Like, Can you remember how you discovered that concept of how one small act in the past can trigger this domino effect of actions that are kind of felt through time? Well, when I was in high school, I read Ray Bradbury's The Sound of Thunder. That's probably the masterpiece of the butterfly effect, right? That's where the term comes from, from that story. There were episodes of The Twilight Zone where, where that happened. And then, of course, there were episodes where uh, and, and, and stories where 
you could not change history. Uh, it was written in stone. And if you tried to change history, it would backfire or it, it, you would just run up against the wall. Um, but we thought that uh, the malleability of it was, was very interesting. And, you know, since we're talking about first drafts here on, on your show, um, in the first draft of Back to the Future, the problem that Doc Brown was trying to solve was a device that was called the power converter. He had this power converter, but he wasn't able to find the right chemical formula for it to be used. In this draft, it turns out to be Coca-Cola, uh, the most closely guarded chemical formula uh, in the universe, right? Uh, with the knowledge that the doc of 1952, because in the first draft, which was written in 1980 and 1981, Marty goes from 1982 to 1952. So with the knowledge that doc gains about how he can make his power converter work with Coca-Cola in 1952, the world that Marty returns to in 1982 is really kind of a sky captain in the world of tomorrow, uh, Futurama, Norman Belgetti's flying car, uh, the, the future that the world's fairs would always tell us we were going to have and we never did. And that was always a fascinating idea to us uh, about how everybody always predicts the future, not only incorrectly, but wildly incorrectly. And yet this was one element that people that read the script had a real significant problem. They didn't want to see Marty end up in this world that was so completely different than the world that he left. Uh, and so we ultimately decided that what we were going to do, and it turned out to be, of course, absolute correct idea, alterations in the history would only occur in the McFly family. They, the rest of the world was the same. So, you know, you go into the theater in 1985 and Ronald Reagan is president and you walk out of the theater in 1985 and Ronald Reagan is still president. But George McFly is an author at the end and he's not and he's, you know, he's just a, a bureaucratic nebbish at the beginning. So everybody's is comfortable with. Yeah. OK, I, I'm, I'll accept the idea that. Uh, the McFly family has changed for the better while where they would not have accepted that the world all around us has changed in any way, shape or form. So that was a, that was a decision. And it's sort of to say, OK, if you think about uh, about time as a river, you throw a, a pebble in and the ripples that come out of the from the from throwing that pebble in uh, that has local repercussions, um, but the river itself keeps flowing in the same direction. But if you blast the side of a mountain into the river uh, and you literally change the flow of the river, the time, time continuum moves completely differently and that affects everything and everybody. We threw in the pebble, but we didn't, we didn't dump the whole side of the cliff in there. Back to the Future as we know it begins with that iconic shot of Marty plugging in a guitar into that supersized speaker in the dock's garage and being blown across the room. And there's so much information in that opening tracking shot across Doc's garage that tells you a little bit about what you're about to witness. So we see clocks that set up the theme of time. We see the missing plutonium that obviously is going to have a massive narrative importance. 
we see a dog food contraption that hints at both Doc's kind of genius and, and the intricacies of the movie itself. In your first draft, though, we begin in outer space. We think we're seeing a spaceship sailing through the cosmos. Then the camera pulls back to reveal that actually it's a video of close encounters that Marty and Doc are bootlegging. So they have an illegal pirate video operation above an old theatre. Um, what can you tell me about that and, and the Marty and Doc or, or Professor Brown, as he's actually known here? Right. Who are these characters that we meet in the first draft compared to the characters they became? Well, they're not terribly different. The idea that Doc Brown is involved in a, in a scam here. Let's, let's remember what makes Doc such a wonderful character. He rips off the Libyans. We also see him pay off a cop. Hey, Dr. Brown, what's with the wire? You know, you got a permit for that. So Doc is a guy that, that is not averse to getting his hands dirty for the sake of the greater goal here. And, you know, Marty's kind of a hustler. And we, we thought that, you know, video piracy was a brand new thing uh, in the early 80s. So we said, okay, this would be something that this would be something that a kid would be into. Now, when uh, the head of Universal Studios read that draft, he said, "Under no conditions." <laughs> that was uh, that changing. That was uh, was one of the very first conditions that we had of uh, of doing the movie at Universal. There are definite seeds of the characters, as you say. You describe Marty in the script as a good-looking kid with an air of confidence, just shy of cockiness, which is pretty consistent with how Michael plays him. His clothes are different. He's wearing a silver Porsche jacket, and like most typical modern-day kids. Not a stitch of his clothing is without some brand name or form of advertising. But he's also looking at an ad for a guitar amp in Rolling Stone. So the idea of him as an aspiring musician is intact here, even in this early draft. Who was Marty to you? And what was the trick of making him so immediately likable and real? At one point, for about a, three weeks, I guess, when we were playing around with this, now the time machine in, in this early draft is built out of an old refrigerator. It's a time chamber. Uh, and, and we were playing around with an idea where Marty was absolutely despondent about how messed up his life was. And he thinks that by going into this time chamber, um, it might be a way for him to end it all. And we played around with that for too long before we just said to ourselves, you know, nobody Nobody's going to like a kid that wants to commit suicide. This is not a good idea at all. So I tell this because oftentimes to get to a really good idea, you have to deal with some really bad ideas. It's like dating. You have to go out with the wrong person a couple of times so that you recognize the right person when they come along. So we decided, okay, this whole idea that Marty's going to be this guy who's got enough confidence that he's going to have the ability to straighten out his father from being picked on um, that. And, and even in that, that first draft, that core story uh, is, is pretty much intact there. That was really what informed, okay, how, how do we show that this kid is cool? How do we show that he's got it together? He's going to be a guy that we're going to want to root for uh, and, and spend, you know, two hours with. And, and, and so this is, this, that's what we came up with. And, of course, the idea that he was going to invent rock and roll, that was a way early idea. So, of course, he's going to be uh, looking at an amplifier and, and maybe have a guitar around. So, um, you know, and, and anybody who's aspiring to, to do that is aspiring in a, in a creative field. That's something that uh, most audiences can identify with and feel, yeah, I wanted to do that. 
I get that. I, I understand that guy. So yeah, so that's, that was at the core of it. And how about Doc? As I mentioned, he's Professor Brown here rather than Doc. And there's the same eccentric personality, but it feels like it was in later drafts that you really discovered this guy's character and a lot of his quirks and quips. How did he develop? And where did some of the catchphrases that came to define him, like Great Scott, come from? I don't remember, actually, when Great Scott entered the script, if it was in in the first draft or the second draft, or it took us to the third draft to get there. I, I, I don't recall that. But there was still always the idea that this guy was a bit of a loose cannon, that he was a bit of a renegade scientist, this American mythology idea that he was the guy that you were going to believe could invent a time machine that works. One of the rules sort of, of, of writing his character was that for the most part, Doc would use a big word when a little one would do, uh, as reflected in the, the scene in the high school later. Look, a rhythmic ceremonial ritual. All that stuff made him made him very human. But again, as, as you spend more time with characters, you get to know them better as a writer. And then when you get an actor involved, you get to know them even better. One of the things I love about Back to the Future is you never explain Marty and Doc's friendship. We don't need to know why these guys hang out. To me, like that first scene in the finished film kind of explains it all. Like, well, he, maybe he has this huge amp and Marty loves to play guitar and he play. I don't know. There was always some sort of hint there to what their friendship is and where it began. But I'm, I'm curious to know if um, you and Robert had a reason or a backstory as to how this teenager and this disgraced nuclear physicist came to be best friends and whether you abandoned it or whether it was something you never felt the urge to explain. Everybody says what you say, that when they see it, they believe it. They just accept it, which was really important to us. But the idea that Bob and I always had in our heads was, okay, Doc Brown is this eccentric, disgraced, dangerous nutcase, as Strickland refers to him. Marty growing up would have been told, you know, whatever you do, don't ever go over to this guy's house. He burned down his house to collect the insurance money or um, he's doing some dangerous stuff over there. You don't ever want to go into that garage. Well, being a a normal red-blooded American teenager, what's the first thing he's going to want to do? He's going to want to go over there and check this out. And in our uh, IDW Back to the Future comic books, in issue number one, we actually have a story how Marty met Doc. And it's exactly that. Doc Brown has cornered all the all the vacuum tubes that Marty needs for his his guitar amplifier. And he breaks in and he says, oh, God, this guy, this guy's really cool. And Doc says, "Okay, this kid was smart enough to break in my lab. I'm going to hire him as my uh, as my assistant. So. Doc is the father that Marty didn't have. Doc is doing all the cool stuff that a kid like Marty would be fascinated by. And all the eclectic stuff that we see in Doc's lab, Marty's going to be totally attracted to that. When I was a kid, my next door neighbor was a professional photographer and he had a dark room in his basement. And I remember when I was in the second or third grade, he invited me and my brothers to come over and bring uh, bring a roll of film over. And he developed it and showed us how, how, how to make photographs in his basement. And we were, he, he was to us, you know, Doc Brown, Mr. Wizard. He, he did this magic 
And I think that that's something that I always carried with me. Um, and, and he and his wife were unable to have children. So, you know, we were kind of surrogate kids for them. And so we would go over there occasionally and, or he'd invite us over and say, yeah, I'll develop your film, you know, and, and he just got a big kick out of, out of sharing what he did with some young boys that were fascinated by, by what he could do. That's so nice. Now, one thing that definitely seemed to develop as you wrote further drafts of the movie was a sense of Hill Valley and its geography, especially that town square. So in the finished film, Marty realises he's late for school. He grabs his skateboard and uh, we see him kind of race through Hill Valley to avoid detention, which is so important. We're going to see this space again and again in different time periods throughout the series. So it's really effective that you established it so early in the final film. In your first draft, though, Hill Valley isn't quite as defined. It, it doesn't yet have a name. Can you tell me about that setting for the film, how it developed and, and the America that you wanted it to represent? One of the reasons that it works so well, we ended up shooting it on the Universal back lot, which was something that our production designer, Larry Paul, kind of had to drag Bob kicking and screaming to agree to, because we'd gone on location scouts thinking to ourselves, okay, where are we going to find you know, the perfect American town. And we went to Petaluma, California, which was used in the movie Explorers. There was a lot of Petaluma that was really exactly what we wanted Hill Valley to be. But the idea of redressing a contemporary town to the 1950s was really expensive. It meant you had to take out the parking meters. You had to take out the streetlights and replace them with period stuff. You had to buy out working stores and change the storefront facades. This was going to be very prohibitive, especially since our shooting schedule had us shooting around Christmas time. And we were going to be interfering with businesses trying to make their uh, Christmas sales. So our production designer came adamant and he said, look, he said, we have the perfect place to shoot this. It's the universal backlot town square. He said, we, I can make this great. It's going to not cost as much money as shooting on location. We will have total control over it. And finally, you know, pragmatically, you know, Bob Zemeca said, okay, all right. All right, Larry, I'm going to trust you to do it. Remember, Larry Paul is the guy that uh, made the Warner Brothers backlot look like the future in Blade Runner. He was a very, very talented production designer. So once we said, okay, we have complete control over this environment, then it was, okay, since we have complete control over it, let's do everything that we can to contrast 1985 with 1955. And one of those things was the actual town square itself, that in 1985, it's a parking lot. And in 1955, it's this green space with a war memorial. Uh, and of course, we carried that on to make the town a character in Back to the Future 2 and Back to the Future 3, where in the future, it's again become a green space with a pond, Biff land, Biff horrific. Uh, it's a horrible parking, parking area with a casino. So we just said, this is a great benchmark. Uh, and then, of course, in part three, it's... Uh, it's it's still dirt and they haven't they're still building the courthouse 
So it was just a really wonderful device for us to take the audience through time. And as you say, it became a character and it all grew out of the fact that we had this totally controllable environment and we were going to use it. Hey, this is Al. Just jumping in to tell you about one of our great sponsors this week, We Screenplay. Making progress on your screenplay can be an incredibly isolating experience. You've completed a draft, but what next? That's where We Screenplay comes in. Not only does We Screenplay have amazing free resources, like virtual events where your questions are answered by Hollywood's leading professionals, they're also the industry's number one script coverage service. Looking for notes on your short script, TV pilot or feature film? With incredible 72-hour turnaround, format-specific feedback that's tailored to your specific goals, and a price that no one else can come close to, We Screenplay coverage is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from folks writing their first script all the way to Oscar winners and longtime producers. So if your script is all ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of the real-life industry meetings, hands-on workshops and once-in-a-lifetime learning opportunities that We Screenplay has to offer. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay are here to help. Check out We Screenplay by visiting wescreenplay.com or clicking the link in today's show notes. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And speaking of things that changed from the first draft for what I'm assuming to be practical reasons, in the first draft, Professor Brown, Doc, has not Einstein the dog, but a chimpanzee called Shemp. What happened to Shemp, Bob? Was a, a chimp too impractical when it came to the actual production or what inspired that change? Uh, this was a change that was basically ordered by Sid Scheinberg, CEO of MCA. Uh, there were several things that he demanded, and this was one of them. He said, I remember this vividly, Bob and I both. We had a preliminary meeting with him after he'd read the second draft, and we hadn't written the third draft. He said, now the chimps got to go. He said, I looked it up. Movies with chimps in them don't make any money. I said, what about the Clint Eastwood movie, Every Which Way But Loose? That was a huge hit. He said, that, sir, was an orangutan. So... We changed, we, we said, okay, okay, if, if that's so much of a big deal to you, uh, we'll give Doc a dog instead of a chimp. And among the other things that he said is, I don't like him called Professor Brown. Um, that just sounds like the nutty professor to me. I said, okay, uh, are you okay with Doc Brown? He said, yeah, Doc Brown's fine. And Bob Zemeckis said, you're not worried about Dr. Brown cream soda, which was a soda brand in the States. He said, nope, call him Doc Brown. It'll be fine. He didn't like the name of Marty's mother, which in the first draft, her name was Eileen. That's right. Yeah. An old girlfriend of mine. Uh, in the second draft, it was Mary Ellen uh, after Bob Zemeckis' wife. And then Scheinberg said, change your name to Lorraine, which was his wife, actress Lorraine Gary. So, you know, changing a name to satisfy, you know, the head of the corporation that's, that's not anything we're going to lose sleep over. So, yeah. So she became Lorraine. <laughs> Interesting. And we should talk as well. It's around this point in the screenplay that we meet Biff. So you describe him as an intimidating lout whose pot belly protrudes from his security guard uniform. His tie is undone, shirt tail out. He's got a shoulder patch that reads special security officer. I think he works at a golf course. Um, can you tell me about Biff and uh, how that character evolved? To me, he's a definitive movie villain because 
Everyone knows or has known a Biff Tannen. You tapped into a very familiar strain of bully that plagued the planet and, well, for four years there at the White House. How did that character come to be? Well, as you say, everybody knows a Biff Tannen. And uh, we, in fact, named the name Tannen was uh, uh, named after uh, Ned Tannen, who was uh, one of the presidents at Universal Studios when we made I Want to Hold Your Hand. Uh, and he was he was an intimidating bully guy uh, and just barked orders. And he ended up being a being a decent guy. But, boy, he was he, he was just really he was a bully. Um, and of course, everybody, like you say, we've all had bullies in our life. And so, you know, the story of the bully that ultimately gets his comeuppance, it's, it's, a, it's a classic story. We should talk also about agents Reese and Foley from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Yeah. So, so these guys, well, they don't exist in the script. I think there's a, those character names pop up as cops or something yeah. like that in, in a later version. But um, yeah, these are two kind of shadowy government agents who accost Marty during Act One. They want to do a routine radiation check and they're asking a lot of questions about Professor Brown's lab. Can you explain uh, what that idea was with those two characters and this whole kind of abandoned strand of the first draft of Back to the Future? Well, sure. Um, first of all, it was for, for whatever reason, in, in the first script Bob and I wrote together, I came up with these cop names, Reese and Foley. And in every script Bob and I ever wrote, except for Back to the Future 3, because we used them in Back to the Future 2, we always had two cops named Reese and Foley, every script, or two characters named Reese and Foley in 1941. So it just was kind of, okay, this sort of superstition or whatever. The time machine was nuclear power. Doc had to have gotten nuclear material from somewhere. Um, he stole it in the first draft. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was on his tail looking for it. And in that draft, it was those guys busting in on Doc Brown uh, while he's in the middle of an experiment uh, that became the cause of Marty being sent back to 1952. The idea that Doc is a bit of an outlaw, not a bit of an outlaw, he is, he is an outlaw in, in, that, in that script. Everybody likes an outlaw. So yeah, so that's where those guys came from. Uh, they, were, they were total foils and because of what we did at the end of the end of the story, there was never any reason to see them again. Yeah. Well, we'll get to the end of the story. As you say, it's these guys that come in and interrupt their experiment as they're sending, well, Shemp the chimp rather than Einstein the dog back in time in this first draft. It's from here the time travel element really kicks in. So for starters, the time machine, as you mentioned, it isn't a DeLorean. Instead, it's basically a refrigerator powered by a Coca-Cola fueled power converter. Am I right in thinking that that idea was dropped because there was a fear that children would, you know, want to copy what they saw on screen and that they'd lock that's, themselves in refrigerators? That's that's something that Bob Zemeckis said. That's not really the reason. The reason that we changed it is because Bob Zemeckis came up with a much better idea. The logistics, he came in the office one day and he said, you know, Bob, I've been thinking about the logistics of having to have Doc Brown put this uh, refrigerator on the back of a pickup truck and, and carry it around. And, and quite literally in the, in these early drafts propulsion, the, the means of sending of, of time travel was a nuclear going to be a nuclear ex test site explosion. Uh, and they actually had to drive the, 
the time machine out to Nevada, where a nuclear test in the 1950s, where a nuclear test was was going to take place. So Bob came in to the office and he said, there's a lot of shooting that I have to do to have this thing on a forklift and dock loading it on. I don't want to do that. It's a waste of, it's just a waste of time. Wouldn't Doc have been smarter to have built the car, the time machine into a car, make it mobile? And I said, yeah, that would, that would save a lot of trouble. Uh, as a producer, my, my saving money wheels are turning in my head. He came up with the, with, with the best part of that. What if it was a DeLorean? This was in the August of 1984 when John DeLorean was on trial in the United States for this trumped up cocaine charge. And so he was on the news every night. So the idea that it could be a DeLorean with this notorious John DeLorean echoing through that, plus the very, very cool design of the car with the gold wing doors, which led to the flying saucer gag. So that that's how all that came about. It was not out of fear that kids would lock themselves in refrigerators. It's really it would really be hard to lock yourself in a refrigerator if you if you actually tried to do that. It, it was just you know Bob being Bob being a wise guy. With the same, same Bob Zemeckis that said, "Oh yeah, hoverboards are real." And the toy, the parents' groups won't let the toy companies make them. <laughs> he likes to do stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what follows from there? You know, we, we start to see the same skeleton of uh, the second act in the finished film. Like, Marty is back in the past. There's all those fun kind of culture shock moments where well, in this first draft, he tries to order a tab and there's confusion. He tries to pay for a coffee with a $20 note and everyone can't believe this guy's walking around with such an insane amount of money on him confusion about his clothes as there is in the final film the things that are different in this first draft we don't yet have that scene where marty pushes george out the way of the car nor that great scene that became a motif of marty kind of waking up to discover his mum looking after him but obviously she's young your first draft is also missing what for my money is the most ingenious part of the movie from a storytelling perspective so in the finished film marty is carrying around a photo of him and his siblings and as his parents become less and less likely to get together, Marty and his siblings begin to disappear in this photo. Now, I was a kid when I was watching this film on loop over and over again. It's a complicated film, lots of complicated science and logic, but that visual device communicates so cleverly everything you need to know and what the stakes are as the film is moving. For me as a you know six-year-old or whatever, that was the thing that like kept me on board and I could understand what was happening. How did that device come to be? Because it's not in here. I, you know what? I don't remember exactly how we came up with that. Other than as a screenwriter, you are always trying to find a picture that tells a story. It's very important to come up with some kind of a visual that people will remember or that, you know, the, the cliche is a picture is worth a thousand words. But cliches are cliches because they're true. And so you burn an image into somebody's head and you say, okay, here's this completely explains the problem. You know, your brother is fading out of this photograph. Oh, okay. Okay. It's one of those very cool things where it works perfectly as a filmic device. If you think about it too much, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because you say, well, why is his brother disappearing why is the literal photograph itself not disappearing? You know, 
why would somebody frame a photo of Marty and his sister in such a weird way, right? Um, there's a lot of questions that you could ask about that, but we don't give the audience time to ask those questions. We just say, here are the rules, and we're never going to violate these rules. Uh, and that, by the way, is something that Bob and I totally, totally subscribe to as storytelling uh, 101. When we say the DeLorean has to go 88 miles an hour and it has to have 1.21 gigawatts, that is inviolate. We don't change that. Now, you compare that to a movie like Inception, where for the first three quarters of the movie, they're telling you whatever you, you can never go down to level four. You can only go down to level three. You can't ever go past level three. And then suddenly, three quarters of the way through the movie, oh, you know, you know what, by the way, yeah, you can go down. He's like, wait, what? You've told us for an hour and a half you can't do this, and now you can? I, boy, that just really frosted me. That is not right. You know, you should set up the rules, and those are the rules. So you will see that as a benchmark of all Zemeckis and Gale movies, all Zemeckis movies, because Bob absolutely understands that and believes that. And when you lay stuff out and you say, this is how it's going to be, the suspense comes when after you've laid out the caper, something starts to go wrong. And the audience knows, oh, wait, it's supposed to happen like this and it's not happening. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? That's how you create great suspense and great tension. And as you mentioned a moment ago, the third act really does kind of get pretty different to uh, the finished script. So instead of using the lightning bolt, that they know is going to hit the clock tower in the final script. Here, Marty and Doc have to steal an army surplus truck, get the time machine on it, disguise themselves as army personnel, sneak onto an army base where they're testing a nuclear bomb, then use the radiation from the blast to transport home while being shot at by the US military. So talk to me, Bob, what was, uh, what was the original vision for how Doc and Marty would get home and what was both more special and self-contained as well as kind of more practical about the whole lightning bolt routine. When Bob and I were kids, we saw a movie called The Atomic Kid. And there's a allusion to it in, in Back to the Future, because that's the movie that's playing at the end of the of town square when the, when the car drives down the town theater, uh, now playing The Atomic Kid. And it's a terrible movie. And, and it's really perverse because the story is that Mickey Rooney plays a uranium prospector who accidentally gets uh, wanders onto a nuclear test site where they built this fake town. And this is what the U.S. Army did to test uh, nuclear explosions, to see what it would do to, to a typical American town. They would build these fake towns to measure what the nuclear blast would do to, do to a building. So Mickey Rooney goes, finds his town and thinks it's a real town and he gets caught in a nuclear blast and he ends up becoming irradiated and he gets these superpowers from, uh, from being irradiated. So it's really, it's really twisted. Um, but the idea that the government built these fake towns and it's explored in a documentary called the atomic cafe, which should be required viewing for anybody who's interested in this kind of stuff. Um, that was always fascinating to us and what what the government was doing with these nuclear tests. So we thought, wouldn't it be cool to put this stuff in the, in our movie? And that's what we did. And uh, of 
course, Stephen read that draft, and uh, you see it in the beginning of Indiana Jones Part Four. <laughs> you do indeed. That's where that came from. We were really in love with wanting to do this. When we're in pre-production, the budget for the movie comes in, and it's too high. And my recollection is that they told us to cut a million dollars out of it. Our production manager seems to think it was six million dollars. I, I can't believe it could have been that much back back then. But at any rate, the student, it was it was too expensive, and we had to cut a bunch of money out of it. And Bob and I had a long heart to heart, and we said the most expensive thing that's in this script is going on location to the desert building this town, building this uh, nuclear test. If we can cut that out, put in the company on location, if we can cut that out, that is going to save us all the money that we need to save to, to, to get the show on budget. So we decided, okay, so now we have to come up with an alternate. How can we save that money? And the way to save the money is by doing the finale on a location that we already control. And that location that we already control was the town square. Uh, the same thing came up in the skateboard chase because we had planned to go on location to do the skateboard chase. And Marty was going to escape from Biff and his guys by skateboarding in front of an oncoming locomotive. Uh, and we were actually going to do that in the same vicinity where we ended up shooting back to the future three too expensive. So we figured out how to do that on the town square. And then we spent a weekend on the town square, walking around spitballing ideas. And we came up with this idea of putting a clock on the pediment of the courthouse. It didn't exist at that time. Uh, you can look at old movies that were shot there and you don't see a clock there. That was new for Back to the Future. We're going to put a clock there. We're going to put a lightning rod on top of it. And lightning is going to be what we use, uh, a big lightning strike. And we're going to build a whole sequence around this clock. And of course, sometimes having limits on your creativity makes you more creative and is all for the best. And this is certainly a case of that because the finale of Back to the Future, as we all know it, is a million times better than it would have been had we had an unlimited budget and then built our nuclear test site. This version of the script ends with what I call like the shining ending. So George stares at a newspaper clipping that he comes across, a story with the headline, Police Kel near riot at school dance, with a photo of the dance that shows Marty on stage. George stares at the photo, then shakes his head. Nah, couldn't be, but it is. Uh, the movie ends on that image. In the finished film, of course, we end with that incredible line, roads where we're going, we don't need roads, and Doc whisks Marty and Jennifer off into the future to deal with a problem relating to their kids. It obviously sets things up really nicely for a second movie, but at what point in writing Back to the Future, if at all, did you begin to see how this movie could open out into a trilogy? Did you know from the very beginning that it had sequel potential, that audiences who have seen Marty and Doc go into the past would now want to see them go into the future? At what point did you realize there's a bigger story at hand here? Never. We never realized it at the time. That was just a really good ending. As Bob Zemeckis has said many times, if we knew we were going to do a sequel, we would have never had Jennifer get in the car. That became a dramatic problem for us to solve. Uh, it made us completely crazy for the longest period of time. Now, in the, in the first draft, 
Doc picks up Marty in a flying car. And so powered by his power converter. So the idea of doing a flying car was always something that was in our consciousness. I remember when I was a kid, nine, nine years old, 1960, I saw a documentary about the wonderful world of 1985, in which we would have flying cars. Um, and of course, <laughs> no, uh, we may never have them, um, which may be okay. Uh, people have enough trouble driving in two dimensions. Maybe they ought not be driving in three. But anyway, the flying car was always uh, something that we associated with saying, okay, here is a picture that tells a story that the future is cool, that the future is better than the present. That's where that idea came from. And as I say, the, the reason that there's a sequel is because Back to the Future was you know, the biggest hit movie of, of 1985. And there was no way that Universal was going to say, we're not going to do a sequel. And they basically came to us and said, okay, guys, here's the deal. There is going to be a Back to the Future Part 2. And you can be on this bus or you can be off the bus. We'd like you to be on the bus, but if you refuse to do it, we're going to go do it with somebody else. And we said to Universal, all right, we'll tell you what. If you can make deals with Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd to come back for a sequel, we'll come up with something for Back to the Future Part 2. We don't know what it'll be, but as long as we have those two guys, we'll figure something out. And Scheinberg went and made deals with both Michael and Chris for not only Back to Future Part 2, but Back to Future Part 3. And nobody was even thinking about a Part 3, but he was just being a very smart studio executive and saying, yeah, okay, if I'm going to make a deal for one sequel, might as well make a deal for two. Uh, and <laughs> a very fortuitous a very fortuitous decision on his part. So, so yeah, the, the ending is just, it's very satisfying. Our heroes go off together to have another adventure. You know, it's, it's, it's a classic type of ending. Yeah, one of our Patreon supporters actually wrote in with a question about that. Uh, Griffin Beer had heard that there was originally not a plan for sequels and that the cliffhanger ending of the first film was difficult to write around. He wanted to know if it had not ended with Doc, Marty and Jennifer going to the future together, where might you have taken this story instead? That was just not in our consciousness. And as, as you know, um, what we, one of the dramatic, big dramatic problems of Back to the Future Part Two was here we made a movie where we say you can change the future. Uh, nothing is written because uh, Marty's, Marty's changes his own future um, by helping George. So, what if Marty said to Jennifer at the very beginning, okay, Jennifer, I'm not going to marry you. We're breaking up. Then his future with her is erased and there's no reason for them to go to the future. Now we knew the audience wouldn't sit still for that. We promised that there was something wrong with his kids. We had to show it, but that's why the story in takes place in the future for only the first 25 minutes or 30 minutes or so. And then we get on with the rest of the story, which is the classic time travel story of, you, you know, using uh, knowledge of the future to enrich yourself in the past and what, and what that can entail. We talked about having Marty end up in the 1920s uh, and showing uh, Doc Brown's parents and, and his mother in particular, in which Doc Christopher Lloyd would portray his mother. 
this became part of the plot of the Telltale Back to the Future video game. So anybody that wants to, of which I had a lot of influence over. So anybody who wants to understand what that story would have been like, either get your hands on that video game. Uh, there was a comic book series based on that called, uh, I believe it's called Citizen Brown. And that explores that explores some of that. So that was one place that we thought we would take it. We actually wrote a draft. I wrote a draft where instead of going back to 1955, a second time, they go to 1967. And we deal with the whole Haight-Ashbury counterculture thing. Uh, and, and Doc Brown is smoking dope. And Lorraine is a flower child. And George is a English professor uh, at Hill Valley Community College. So we, we there, there's a anti-war protests and so forth. Bob saved all that kind of stuff for Forrest Gump. We talked at the beginning about how uh, this franchise, these characters have endured. And I, th I think part of the reason is that you've been pretty protective over the years about the Back to the Future name. As you mentioned, there are kind of comics, there are video games that expand the universe. But for the most part, Back to the Future remains special in a time where every pop culture property has been rebooted, remade and sequelized within an inch of its life. Back to the Future is kind of this untouchable, perfectly contained trilogy of films. I was chatting to David Chase recently, who made The Sopranos, and he was explaining the kind of like near weekly phone calls he would get asking him to, you know, can we get a Sopranos sequel? Can we get a Sopranos sequel? Can we do a Sopranos movie? Uh, I'm curious, Bob, how often are you fielding those calls these days or, or do studios know better than to ask because you've been very clear that that's not a route you want to go down? The studio knows better. Every once in a while, they will bring it up. But they know better. And look, the fact that Michael J. Fox has Parkinson's disease is, is a huge contributing factor here because people will say to me, well, what about Back to the Future Part 4? And I'll say, okay, do you want to see a Back to the Future movie that doesn't have Michael J. Fox in it? And they'll think about it and say, well, no, not really. So do you want to see a Back to the Future movie in which Marty McFly is suffering from Parkinson's disease? And they say, well, no, I don't, I don't really want to see that either. So I say, well, then you've answered, you've answered the question why we don't do another one. Why do we not reboot it? Well, there's no need. You know, the movies, the movies are great. All that's going to happen is people will see the reboot and they'll say, well, it wasn't as good as the Michael J. Fox version. And who wants to go out on that, right? You know, we've seen franchises that have gone to the well too many times. And you kind of just say, well, you know, do I like to see Indiana Jones in his 80s? Maybe not, you know? Do I like to see John McClane in his 60s or 70s? Eh, maybe not. So these characters exist as we know them and love them in their 80s versions. And so when we went to do the musical, there was no question that that was, those were the characters that the audience wanted to see. That was a way to retell the story in a different medium, using different paintbrushes, different tools, stay true to the core of what the story was, not interfere with anybody's view of the trilogy, and use the musical to retell and celebrate retell the story and celebrate it. And I think that we have absolutely achieved that. 
Yeah, you mentioned it was the most kind of creatively exciting project of your entire lifetime, Bob. Why is that? And also, what were some of the challenges involved with doing a project like this? There's got to be expectation as well as kind of anticipation. Glenn Ballard, one of our songwriters, uh, he's always said, first thing you do is you take the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. So everybody was on board to say, you know, the only liberties we're going to take is what do we have to do to translate it onto a stage and add songs to it. But in terms of the of the core drama of the piece, that was going to remain intact. So dramatically, the issue was always, okay, what are the things that you absolutely cannot do on stage? And how do we find suitable dramatic substitutes for them? So you're not going to have a chase, a car chase with the Libyans on a stage, on a theatrical stage. So we have to come up with uh, another way for Doc's life to be jeopardized uh, that is totally doable on stage. I'm not going to tell you what that is, but we did that. We can't practically do a skateboard chase on stage. Skateboarding is dangerous. Uh, we and, and we expect our lead character to sing, dance, and skateboard, and we're going to risk having him break an ankle or break a bone by falling off a skateboard. No, we're not doing that. So we need to come up with a suitable dramatic substitute that gives us a chase, which we do inside the school. And it's very funny and it's very effective. Uh, and there is a there is a moment where Marty does skateboard across uh, the stage in a straight line. So it's totally safe so that we can have an allusion to the skateboard sequence, but that it's not dangerous. So there were a number of things like that where we said, OK, what's the dramatic way to present this idea, to present this drama, to get this point across on a theatrical stage that the audience will will be comfortable with. That was a dramatic challenge from a story writing part. And then, of course, it was to say, Bob Zemeckis and I went through the script with, with uh, Alan Sylvester and Glenn Ballard and said, okay, uh, maybe a song should go here. Maybe a song should go there. Uh, and at certain points, Alan Glenn would write a song and say, hey, Here's a song. We don't know where it goes, but we think it's a pretty cool song. What do you think? Um, what do we do with it? And we'd say, yeah, that's a good song. Um, maybe if you change the lyrics and we say this and instead of that, uh, we can, you know, revise the structure and revise the scene and, and incorporate it there. And, and that was the collaborative effort of doing that. And then finally, when it came time to actually put this on the stage and have a, have a, a theater director, John Rando, who was absolutely fantastic, to come and say, okay, you know, Bob, he would say, you can't, this, this isn't really going to work this well on stage. Or he would say, You've had, you have some key exposition in song, and the audience will remember the key exposition if it's spoken instead of sung, something that I didn't know. But again, he, he was a walking encyclopedia of musical theater and he gave me the best education I could possibly ask for. So through collaboration with him, and he's a master of transitions for anybody who sees the show, has seen it, you'll just say, wow, the transitions, how we go from one scene to the next. Um, there are very few blackouts. We just have the scenes kind of meld into one another uh, and, and it's very effective. And, and John is a master of that. 
I can't wait to see it, Bob. Well, Back to the Future finishes with uh, with Marty and co kind of looking into the future. So I'll end this interview the same way, Bob. You've just done the musical, you, which sounds so much fun. When you were doing it, did you feel like your relationship with this incredible film series was kind of coming full circle? Or did it kind of relight any fires in you that might see you come back to that world again? I know that we've discussed sequels. That's not something you're going to touch, but animated series, further books, anything like that. What's the future for you in this franchise? Listen, one thing I've learned about predicting the future is that the only thing that you can predict is that there'll be some unpredictable stuff that's going to happen in the future. That, that's the only prediction I'm comfortable making. You know, people say, well, are you going to musicalize Back to the Future Part Two? You know, off the top of my head, probably not. Uh, there's nothing about that movie that kind of says this should sing you know, back the first Back to the Future does because Marty is an aspiring rock star. We actually have musical numbers in the show. Um, there's a reason for this to sing. You know, Back to the Future 2, the power of it is revisiting, literally revisiting the first movie. I think it might be way too complicated to try to put that uh, on stage. So the next step in the evolution of Back to the Future is to bring this to the rest of the world, bring the musical to the rest of the world. That means figuring out how do we translate some of this stuff into German, into Japanese, into Korean, French, any territory that we think it might be a good place for this show to be seen. Uh, and, and to just, you know, keep generating the excitement this is a great story. We have Back to the Future in concert that's going to happening again. That's where the movie is run with a live symphony orchestra playing the score with additional new score that Hal uh, Silvestri wrote for it. That's a fantastic experience. Uh, will there be other things like we did with Secret Cinema in 2014, which was an absolutely fabulous experience? Yeah, I hope so. Um, but right now the focus is let's get uh, Back to the Future of the Musical out there in the world uh, in as many venues and territories as we can because uh, it's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it sounds it, Bob. I can't wait to see it. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for making this incredible film series, which has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. And uh, yeah, we hope to have you back sometime, Bob. Okay, Al. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, give me a buzz when you've seen the show. <laughs> I can't wait to hear how you like it. <laughs> Will do, Bob. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.